Welcome to The Savvy Sauce, where we have practical chats for intentional living. I'm your host, Laura Duggar, and I'm so glad you're here. Today's message is not intended for little ears. We'll be discussing some adult themes, and I want you to be aware before you listen to this message. I am thrilled to introduce you to our sponsor, Windshape Marriage. Their weekend retreats will strengthen your marriage, and you will enjoy this gorgeous setting, delicious food, and quality time with your spouse. To find out more, visit them online at windshapemarriage.org. That's W-I-N-S-H-A-P-E marriage.org. Thanks for your sponsorship. Dr. Julie Slattery is my returning guest today. Interviews with her are always popular, and today's talk was actually our number eight most downloaded episode of 2022. We're going to discuss lessons from her recent book, God, Sex, and Your Marriage. And today she's going to give us a healthy vision for sexual intimacy in marriage and actionable ways we can grow in maturity, delight, and health in our relationship with our spouse. Here's our chat. Welcome back to the Savvy Sauce, Dr. Slattery. Oh, thanks so much. And please call me Julie. Well, Julie, you've been a repeat guest on the Savvy Sauce. So I'll link to your previous episodes in the show notes in case anyone missed getting to know you better there. But you have a unique career. Did you grow up desiring to write and speak about sex? Absolutely not. I think it would have terrified me as a young adult to know that I'd end up doing what I'm doing. But it was just an undeniable call of God. And I knew I wanted to minister. I knew I had a heart for women. I knew I loved helping people like just integrate scripture into everyday life. But the application of sexuality was something that surprised me. And how did God make that call so obvious in your life? Yeah, well, I I was more of a generalist talking about marriage and family issues for a lot of years. My background is I'm a clinical psychologist. And about 12 years ago, God just began to really stir in my heart, take me on a very deep spiritual journey of being hungry for him and seeking him. And during that season, he really just burdened my heart for sexual brokenness. And it was so clear that he was calling me to this, that I couldn't say no. At the time I was working for Focus on the Family, and in some ways that was my dream job, but I was so compelled to step into this space that I was just willing to take it by faith. So I didn't really know what I was getting into, which is probably a grace of the Lord, because I don't know if I would have had the courage, but it's been just an amazing journey. And Based on observations throughout your career, what are some of the important mental shifts that you've noticed women and couples need to make in their sex lives? Oh my goodness. There, there are so many of them. You know, I think first of all, I've become very passionate about helping people think correctly about sexuality, even how we define what makes a good sex life. I think most of us, we're not quite sure how to answer that question. Do you answer it based on the world's culture of a great sex life means it's always fun and it's always exciting? Do you base it on more of like that purity culture thinking where a great sex life means you just follow the rules? Uh, And so I think that most married couples 
are approaching the topic of sexuality with a lot of baggage, a lot of lies that they haven't unearthed. Uh, so that would be the first shift is just spending time working on asking the question, do I have the right perspective of sex? Why God created it? What it's supposed to look like in marriage? I think a second one is understanding that sexual intimacy is all about the journey. It's not about the event. And again, I think our our mainstream culture makes it about pleasure in the here and now instead of the longer perspective of God is teaching you to love each other through the good times and through the bad times. Even when you're struggling, that pain is never meant to be wasted, but to draw you into deeper intimacy with God and with one another. Uh, so those would be a few of them, but uh, certainly there's many more. This is an area of marriage that I think a lot of people struggle to talk about and, and address conflict and difficulties. Well, and another common one that I'm seeing recently, I think in the Christian subculture, people who are focused on sex therapy or writing books, there's kind of this shift that they're encouraging women for something that should have been communicated for all of time, but it's for the wives as well, not yes. just for the husbands. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely a big one that sex is not just this duty that wives are supposed to be engaged in for the sake of keeping their husbands from sin. I think that's been a very harmful message, uh, kind of coming out of a simplistic teaching of a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But if you look at the whole of scripture and God's purpose for sexuality, it 100% is for mutual pleasure and for them to journey together into knowing each other more deeply. And so that's a, a key shift. And I think that journey perspective even comes out more when you think about this is important for the wife too, because in a lot of marriages, it's easier for the man to articulate sexual desire, to experience pleasure. It's more difficult for a woman to understand her sexuality. And so when you think journey, the woman is the one often prompting what that journey is going to be looking like. So I'm glad you mentioned that. That certainly is something that's been more in our conversation in the church over the last five years. And you've personally written some books related to sexual intimacy, but I also appreciate your recent book that's entitled Finding the Hero in Your Husband. Will you just share one of your stories of what a real-life hero looks like? Yeah, this actually is a book that I wrote for the first time over 20 years ago. And then over the last couple of years, I just rewrote the entire thing with the same theme of finding the hero in your husband. But one of the stories that I share of what a husband looks like is a couple, a guy that lived probably... Oh man, he's he's older than we are. He may not be alive anymore, but he was the president of a seminary and a really well-known speaker and Christian leader. His name is Robertson McQuilkin, and his wife got Alzheimer's, and she couldn't be at peace unless Robertson was with her all the time. And so he felt really torn between God's kingdom work at the seminary and his speaking and being by his wife's side. And he chose to forego his career and just be nearby his wife in her final years. And um, he wrote about how 
it just surprised him that so many people were like, wow, what a great thing that you were with your wife till the end. And, and he just said, that's what, that's what we're all supposed to do. And he just said the most beautiful words about his wife. He just said, you know, my wife has ministered to me and served me and been just a beautiful wife to me in every way, you know, for the last 30, 40 years. And it's my turn to lay myself down and serve her in this way. And he said, I don't, I don't have to do this. I get to do this. And when I read that story many, many years ago, even as a young bride, I thought, yeah, that's, that's what I want from my husband. I want that kind of heart that regardless of the circumstances, values me, sees the beauty in me and is willing if necessary to lay down his desires so that I can be well and I can flourish. So I'd say that is a picture of a real life hero and what we in our hearts really long for when we say I do to our husbands. And in that same book, you also talk about the power that women have in marriage. So will you describe what that power looks like and tell us how we can use it in the right way to strengthen our marriage? You know, I think a lot of women feel like they marry a hero like Robertson, like the guy I described. And when their husband doesn't turn out to be that, they think, oh, I married the wrong guy. I didn't get the hero. And what the whole book is about is that actually God has given you power to partner with the Lord in developing that kind of character in your husband. Now, certainly not all men are the same, and there are some guys that come in with really servant hearts and wanting to honor the Lord. And there are some men that, that don't necessarily have that perspective. But God has given women this incredible relational power in marriage. And we try to fix our marriages with this power. And I, I think women work so hard at marriage, but I think often they don't work wisely because they don't understand their power. And that was certainly the case for me. This was the first book I ever wrote the first time around. And I was probably 29 years old, had been married a few years. We had just started having children. And I was struggling with this because I didn't know how to use my strength and my relationship with the Lord and biblical knowledge and my degree in psychology. I didn't know how to use that in a way that didn't seem like it was upstaging my husband. But on the other hand, I really knew that God had made me who I was and he didn't want me to pretend to be weak or naive and not be authentic. And so I was wrestling with this a lot as a young wife and really began to discover that my power is God-given. It's a good thing, but it's something that needs to be surrendered daily to God so that I do use it wisely in a way that creates emotional intimacy in our marriage. And I love how you also teach that our husbands become what they hear from us. Mm -hmm. Right. And I even think back to my childhood. My mom still does this to this day. But she will speak words of life and encouragement over me and things about me that I definitely don't feel worthy of receiving. But even since I was a little girl, she would say such kind things. And I wanted to live up to who she was viewing from the outside. And in the same way with my husband, Mark, I can see what you're saying, that when what I see in him, I want to speak that life and encouragement. But I can see that as well, that he he steps up and rises to that encouragement. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. To a certain degree, our husbands 
stand up and become the people that we envision them to be, not, not who we hope them to be, because sometimes that can feel defeating. Like, oh, I wish you were this, or I wish you were more like that. But they want to rise up to the truth that we speak of who God created them to be. And the same is also true that if my perspective of my husband is, oh man, he's always letting me down and I can't trust him. And he's more like one of the kids that I have to parent. Men sense that and they they go to that level intuitively. And so uh, part of the power that, that God gives us as wives is to speak that life over our husbands and our words are so powerful. They could either really build them up and challenge him in a healthy way, or they can be defeating. And you shared the story about your mom's words and how important our parents' words are. But I also think it's really critical to understand that most men are very sensitive to the issue of competence and failure. Men tend to fear failure more than women fear failure. And so they're more vulnerable to this question of, am I good enough? And when our words or even our nonverbals are consistently communicating, no, I wish you were different or you're not cut it here, then that just takes the life out of their energy to even work on the marriage. And so that's a huge piece of power that God has given me as a wife that whether I realize it or not, I'm using that power every day, but I'm either using it to sabotage intimacy or to build intimacy. Hmm. It does make me think of my own marriage. And Mark is now the number one voice in my life and encourager. So do men have power in marriage too, or does that look different than how women do? Yeah. So men certainly have power in marriage too. The way I think it's helpful to think about it is you have power where your husband has a need and your husband has power where you have a need. Think about it this way. I'll use the example of electricity. So that's power, right? So you probably have one provider of electricity in your neighborhood. There's one company that provides electricity. There's only one. You can't get it from somewhere else. And so if they charge a certain amount, you pay it because you need power. And if they were to shut down power, you'd be like, how do we pay that bill? We need power. And so the fact that you have a need and they only can provide it means they have your attention and they have some capacity to ask whatever they want from you. And the same thing is true relationally. When your husband has a need, like that need to feel valued and respected, or that need to have you be his teammate, that gives you power. And the opposite is also true. So a lot of wives will express that they feel like they just want to be loved. Like, uh, the way I've described it is, and I told my husband this, I want to feel like if you were in a room with a thousand women, you would still choose me. Like even if there are women that were more beautiful and had funnier personalities, you would still choose me. And so that gives my husband power. He has the power to make me feel treasured and valued and loved or to feel like I'm not good enough. His attention is going somewhere else. And so God gives us each this relational power for the purpose of making our marriage feel safe. But so often we end up using that power in a way that makes us feel unsafe. Let's take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. I'm so excited to share today's sponsor, Windshape Marriage, with you. 
Windshape Marriage is a fantastic ministry that helps couples prepare, strengthen, and if needed, even save their marriage. Windshape Marriage is grounded on the belief that the strongest marriages are the ones that are nurtured, even if it seems like things are going smoothly. That way, they'll be stronger if they do hit a bump along their marital journey. Through their weekend retreats, Windshape Marriage invites couples to enjoy time away to simply focus on each other. These weekend retreats are hosted within the beautiful refuge of Windshape Retreat, perched in the mountains of Rome, Georgia, which is just a short drive from Atlanta, Birmingham, and Chattanooga. While you and your spouse are there, you'll be well-fed, well-nurtured, and well-cared for. During your time away in this beautiful place, you and your spouse will learn from expert speakers and explore topics related to intimacy, overcoming challenges, improving communication, and so much more. I've stayed on site at Windshape before, and I can attest to their generosity, food, and content. You will be so grateful you went. To find an experience that's right for you and your spouse, head to their website, windshapemarriage.org. That's W-I-N-S-H-A-P-E marriage.org. Thanks for your sponsorship. I'd love to discuss some of the hot button words, respect and submission. So first, what do you think it means to rightly respect our husbands? Yeah, those are two trigger words, aren't they? I wonder if some people are like either leaning in right now or wanting to click this off. <laughs> like, oh no, they're going to talk about these topics. First of all, I think that those two words have become so triggering and often they go together because traditionally they've made women feel like they have no voice or they've made women feel like they have to be less than. And that is not the message of this book at all. And I really don't believe that's God's heart for women in marriage. We'll tackle that respect one first. I mentioned a few minutes ago that men are really sensitive to failure. They're very sensitive to criticism. So I think most men at some level are waking up every day with a question, am I your hero? Do you believe in me? And so when God calls a woman to respect her husband, Essentially, what he's saying is the way you use that power is to think about your husband in the best light, to think about him in terms of, yeah, I do want to believe in him. I do want to trust him. I don't want to compete with him. I don't want to dominate him. And that's the spirit of what God is calling us to. And then you add that submission word, and it's a similar thing. It's, I want to yield my power for the purpose of the greater good of building intimacy in our marriage. That doesn't mean I become weak. I actually think that women who understand their power and know how to, to use it and how to yield it have actually more influence in their marriage than a woman who becomes dominant and bossy. Both of those words are calling for the wise use of your power. And I spent a lot of time in the book talking about what that doesn't mean. I talk a lot about it certainly doesn't mean that you put up with bad behavior or that you don't speak your mind or opinion. So I think that's where these concepts have been mistaught and it really has led to the dysfunction of marriage. And unfortunately, it's led to a lot of hurt from women. Yes. And I think it's really helpful just to kind of reflect on what messages have been subtle or overt and communicated in that way. And I think of one well-meaning, sweet woman who, when I was early on in my faith, she taught 
that her husband had told her submission means without resistance. Mm. And the more I studied scripture, I realized I don't think that's at all the Lord's heart or intent. And Mm -hmm. you've elaborated, like you said in the book, you talk about what it is, what it is not. And I remember you saying it's not obeying and it's not silent. Right. Is there anything else you could say to elaborate on it? Yeah, I think what we misunderstand is submission is not a certain behavior or a certain role. It's the attitude of your heart. So when we define it as a behavior, like never disagree with your husband or never share your opinion unless your husband asks, which are things that I heard growing up, it's like, eh, you know, like that doesn't feel right. And actually that leads to dysfunction in marriage. It leads to a power imbalance. When we look at it in terms of roles, I think we miss it. Like, oh, the wife's the one that needs to stay home with the kids and the husband's the the bread earner. That just isn't necessarily reflected as a rule in scripture. And there are a lot of couples that have very godly marriages that don't follow that prescribed role. But what submission is really talking about, as well as what God calls husbands to, is an attitude of the heart. And so if my attitude of my heart towards my husband is, I have to be in control, I have to make sure he knows that I'm right, or even if my attitude is, I don't have anything to offer, or I'm afraid of him, I just won't speak my mind, that's the wrong heart attitude. That's not what God is calling you to. And so the attitude of submission is one of, God, I trust you. I know you've given me strength. I know that there are times when you would call me to confront my husband in love, like a sister in Christ would confront a brother. I know there are times where it's godly and appropriate for me to set boundaries about what I believe is biblical and not biblical. But my heart attitude is, how do I build up this man that you've given me? How do I make it so that he feels safe emotionally with me? Um, He doesn't feel like I'm going to come behind him and criticize everything he does, or I'm going to not even give him a chance to step into the leadership that you've called him to. And so I've learned over the years that it's a whole lot more about my attitude than it is about my personality or what specific roles I may be playing within our marriage relationship. And that cooperation that you're describing really gets us to more of the purpose, like you said, a higher goal of the heart attitude. And I think it's helpful just to honor some men and women who have heard faulty teaching on this. So are there any ways that come to mind that you think traditional teaching on submission has been imbalanced or even destructive to marriages? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think we're kind of in the waves of consequences of that right now, which is why a lot of Christian women are just rejecting the concept of submission altogether because it understandably has been harmful and it it now is very triggering. So I've worked with women who were in marriages, for example, that were emotionally abusive or even physically abusive. And they've gone to a pastor and said, you know, my husband's controlling everything. He won't let me see my family. He makes me like get every purchase approved by him, which that is emotional abuse. That's wrong. And pastors will say, well, that's his role. You know, your role is to submit and trust God. 
And, uh, and so that's one example, but you go to even more extreme examples of physical or sexual abuse in a home where a woman just believes, well, I guess I have to just put up with this. So those are, again, extreme examples, but I think that there's more subtle examples of women that I talk to who just feel like they've never flourished in marriage because they just were like, well, I guess he's the leader. I guess he makes all the decisions. And they've never brought their voice to the parenting decisions, the financial decisions, and the job decisions. And that's a very unfortunate thing because it not only hampers the, the wellness of women and their voice, but it also really keeps men from growing because God wants men to grow into being like Jesus Christ, to loving their bride so much that they want to do what's best for her. And they would never lord over this position of husband, but they would constantly be looking at, you know, how do I deny myself for the betterment of my wife and children? And unfortunately, I think even a lot of the the teachers and pastors that have taught this kind of submission, they're just not inviting the women around them to flourish. And that's God's heart that women invite men to flourish and men invite women to flourish. So then kind of on the flip side, because there are so many marriages also where they're modeling it well, what are examples of marriages you've seen where this is working in the way that's more in alignment with scripture? I've been really privileged to see a couple of those marriages up close, you know, began with, I I feel like my mom modeled this very well for me. She, she may not have had the words to say all this when I wrote my first version of this book. I think I might've dedicated it to her. I don't remember, but I think I just said, you know, mom, you, you taught me all of this and she really has, my parents are in their eighties now and they're still very much in love, but I saw her, this feisty little five foot two Italian woman who had so much passion. I saw her never compromise who she is as a person, but just work so hard to, to build her husband, my dad, to build his relationship with each one of his six kids. And I remember him telling me that when I was probably in my mid twenties, he said, I'm the happiest man in the world. And do you know why? He said, because all six of my kids love me. And he said, your mom gave me that gift because um, he was an entrepreneur, a businessman. He was gone a lot. And he said, she really could have turned your hearts against me. But she was so intentional about just always speaking well of me that you guys love me. You don't resent me for the years that I was traveling a lot. And that struck me as a young wife, like, wow. I want to be that kind of woman. Yeah, I want to be the kind of woman that my husband says at the end of our journey, like Julie made me a better man. She made me want to love the Lord more. She helped me have a good relationship with our sons. And I think that's what the writer of Proverbs 31 meant when it was written about this Proverbs 31 woman, the heart of her husband trusts in her. And that's the spirit of this. Does my husband's heart trust me? that I'm not behind his back criticizing him and I'm not nurturing bitterness in my heart about the ways that he's let me down, but I'm consistently saying, God, how do I use all that I am to love this man well? 
And with that type of marriage, there's such a sweetness. There's a song that we sing with our girls that's called Love at Home and that there is beauty all around when there's love at home. And it can definitely start with the married couple. Absolutely. That is by God's design where it's supposed to start. Now, obviously, that doesn't happen in every marriage. And God brings love in many different ways in terms of the love of parents to their children and friendships and the love of his body. But one of the most intense pictures of Christ's love for his people is meant to be that marriage relationship. Who is someone you love? Who could use encouragement today? With that person in mind, will you think back to all the Savvy Sauce podcasts and articles available and choose one to share with them right now? Or if you want to love and encourage our team, we invite you to join Patreon. You can put your love of the Savvy Sauce into action by visiting thesavvysauce.com, clicking on the Patreon tab, then following the prompts under Join Patreon here. We can't wait for you to have access to all the bonus features that we offer our patrons. Thanks for your support. Well, so many couples ask if there are secrets to proactive communication and conflict resolution. And you write that there's a difference between a fight and conflict. So can you describe both of those and then share how we can move from fighting to engaging in healthy conflict? Yeah, Laura, this was a real aha moment for me probably, I don't know, maybe eight years ago. I realized that I was always going to have conflict with my husband, but that I never had to fight with him again because I really, I don't like fighting. And I think we use those those words, conflict and fight interchangeably. And we don't understand that not every conflict has to turn into a fight. So a conflict is simply the fact that you and your spouse disagree on something. And it could be something as simple as you want to go out for dinner and he wants to eat something at home. It could be something as deep and complicated as one of you has a relationship with God and the other one doesn't. Or it could be that Uh, you see a situation different or that your spouse said something a certain way that hurts you. Those are all conflicts. And conflict will never go away because you're just different people. And so every day as you interact, you're going to have big conflicts and little conflicts that come up. That's just life. Researcher Dr. John Gottman, who's a very respected marriage expert, found that about two-thirds of conflicts in marriage are never resolved. So just think about that for a minute. Two thirds of your conflicts will never be resolved. And there's a part of me that when I first read that, I'm like, what? And then when I understood more of what he was saying, it was like, oh, like that takes a lot of pressure off. My husband and I will never have the same opinion about what temperature our bedroom should be. (laughs) It's not going away. I like to be places early. He likes to cut it and be there the last minute and drive really fast getting there. That's never going to change. Uh, The way we approach money, I'm a saver and he's a spender. That's always been the case. It's never going to change. And so when we start to realize that it's okay to have conflicts and differences that we learn to navigate even if we never resolve them, it, it takes so much pressure off the marriage. But what happens is, When conflicts come up, what we 
know to do probably from our background is we know to fight and fighting is not all right. We have a disagreement that we need to understand more, but it's, we have a disagreement and now it's my job to prove to you that I'm the one who's right. When we get into a fight, it's about winning. It's about staying safe. Like I hate it when you yell at me. So I'm just going to say whatever it is to make the conflict go away. I'm just going to pacify you. When we get into a fight, we never get to the core issue of what we actually disagree on, and we're never working towards understanding each other. It becomes about how do I stay emotionally safe and how do I prove that I'm the right one? And when my husband and I really started to understand the difference, I'm going to say this and then we'll get in a fight tomorrow, but we can go, we can literally go six months or a year without fighting because we've learned to recognize conflict and deal with it in a way that is us against a problem instead of me against him. Oh, I love that viewpoint. And I'm just going to read one quote from your book on page 128. You say, a fight is motivated by fear, anger, or pride. A conflict is motivated by a desire for deeper intimacy. Yeah, that's true. And I have to learn to recognize that when we have a disagreement and sometimes those disagreements stir up a lot of feelings in me, it does stir up the anger and the fear and the pride. I have to take time away with the Lord to sort through those feelings before I can approach the issue with a desire to have deeper intimacy and understanding. And Laura, I think that's one of the biggest mistakes we make in conflict is we feel like we have to solve it right now. And very, very, very few conflicts have to be solved in the moment. Uh, the vast majority of them, you can take time away. Uh, you can take even days to think about it, to pray about it, to get perspective, and then come back and address it when you're both in the right space to be seeking intimacy together. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. And I think the pushback that comes is often the misuse of that verse don't let the sun set on your anger. Yeah. But what have you learned from even studying that specific scripture? Yeah, that is a verse that's quoted a lot with this. And what what Paul is really saying there is don't go to bed with anger and bitterness and resentment in your heart. And that is a matter between me and God. It's not a matter between me and my husband because Mike cannot take the anger out of my heart. Only God can. And so those couples who feel like we're not going to bed until we solve this, they're putting themselves in a really bad spot because you're not in the right place to solve a problem if it's two in the morning and you're on vacation or you're staying at your in-law's house. Like it's not the right space. It is always the right space for me to say, Lord, right now I'm angry right now. I just want to swear at my husband. I'm so mad at him. I need to give that to you. I need to give my bitterness to you. I need to give you my resentment and trust that as I seek you, you're going to give me a heart to see this the way you want me to see it. And you're going to give me a heart to love my husband well. And so absolutely, Paul is saying, don't go to bed angry, but he's saying, deal with it between you and the Lord. And then when the time is right, you'll have, uh, you'll have the correct mindset and spirit to deal with it between you and your spouse. And I just want to go over one more part of conflict resolution before we get to some proactive communication ideas as well. 
But on page 193, you write, Household chores represent probably the most pressing minor issue in marriage for a lot of couples because they are in a conflict that never goes away. So, Julia, how can couples handle this in a mature way that includes fairness and acceptance and appreciation? Yeah, so those are the three things that that I write about that we have to shoot for is fairness, acceptance, and appreciation. Because, you know, again, this is an issue that it's going to be lifelong. The laundry always needs to be done. The dishes always need to be washed. The bills always need to be paid. That's not a one and done. And you probably will always have different opinions on how you should accomplish those tasks and who should do them. So for example, my husband is a perfectionist and he wants everything just right. So there are certain household tasks that if I do them, he doesn't like the way I do them. He doesn't like the way I fold clothes or iron. It's getting to the fact that he doesn't like the way I I do dishes. Like he thinks the fork should all go in one spot and the spoon should all go in one spot. I don't think that way. And so We have had conflict throughout the years because he wants me to do these household tasks, but then he doesn't like the way I do them. And so we've had to navigate, okay, if this is that important to you to have the clothes folded this way, how about if you fold the clothes and I'll take another household task uh, or just deal with the way I do it? You know, like it's not going to be perfect, but that's life. And so you do have to approach these conversations with, again, is it fair? And fairness is, is one person carrying the lion's share of the work. And sometimes that happens with household chores, especially if you're the one that wants things done just so you can end up doing 90% of the household chores and then you start resenting it. And so I think it's good to have check-ins every now and then of, Here are all the things that need to be done inside the house and outside the house. Do you feel like the way it's broken down is fair? And do you feel like one of us is carrying more of a load than the other? And that's an important conversation to have. Um, The second thing I said is that acceptance. Like if your spouse is going to take on a chore, you have to be okay with the way they do it. And you can't be micromanaging and insisting that it's done the way you think it should. And that includes parenting. You know, men parent differently than women do often. And I know this used to drive me crazy because I would be all about health food with the kids and not giving them screen time. And then when my husband would be with the kids, he'd order pizza and they'd watch a Disney movie. And I'm like, I wanted to micromanage how he parented. And I had to let that go. And then the third thing is appreciation. And I think that's, this is a big thing. And I have to thank my husband for this because he started probably about 10 years ago. Every time I would cook dinner, he would thank me and he'd have the boys thank me. Even if it was grilled cheese and tomato soup, he'd be like, thanks for cooking. Hey boys, thank mom for cooking. And I'd be like, oh, it's nothing. It's just grilled cheese. And he'd be like, yeah, but you made it. And I kind of caught on that to be like, hey, thanks for mowing the lawn or thanks for paying the bills. And I think household tasks are those things that go unappreciated. And if you can just set the tone of appreciating even those little things, it really helps just in encouragement in that long journey of marriage. That is an awesome reminder. 
now for communication, because really so many people do ask, what are your tips for proactive communication? So how do you respond to that question? Yeah, I think first of all, you can't shortcut time because communication, when you haven't really seen each other or spent time alone is different than communication of having lingered together. And when you get in those busy seasons of marriage, all your communication can become about who's picking up our son from soccer and about, oh, I thought you were doing this and uh, why didn't you pay this bill? And, you know, it just becomes about what needs to be accomplished and you're not being reminded of why you like each other. <laughs> so, so I think you can't shortcut time. And even in those busy seasons, it's really ruthlessly cutting out everything in your life that would get in the way of quality time together. And when I say quality time, I mean, have a check-in of at least 10 or 15 minutes a day where it's just the two of you just saying, Hey, how was your day? Um, you know, tell me one thing about your day you'd like me to know. How can I pray for you? How are you feeling today? You know, just that check-in. And then a weekly check-in that goes a little bit deeper for maybe an hour where it's like, hey, let's go for a walk or let's go on a date and just kind of talk about how we're doing. And then an annual kind of splurge of maybe a weekend away going to a marriage conference or something that is going to help build the communication at the deeper levels of reflection and sharing feelings. Um, so those are some things. I think another thing that can be helpful is listening to things together and then reacting to them. So a podcast like this, if a husband and wife listen to this together, they can press pause at any point and say, what did you think about what they just said there? How do you think we're doing on that? And that can be really helpful because somebody else is bringing up difficult topics so that you don't have to but it kind of gives you the language and the permission to speak about things that might be difficult to talk about on your own. Oh, I love how practical that is. Those are great, Julie. And there's so much more that you have to offer. So can you just share where you could direct us all online to see what your ministry has to offer? Sure. Yeah. Um, the ministry is Authentic Intimacy and our website is AuthenticIntimacy.com. And uh, we've got lots of resources there. We've been building it for about 10 years. So uh, we have a podcast called Job with Julie and lots of books and studies and webinars and uh, just however we can help you. We focus a lot on sexuality, on intimacy in, in general, and uh, just really intimacy with God as well. Wonderful. We will link to that in the show notes for today's episode. And you may remember that we're called the Savvy Sauce because savvy is synonymous with practical knowledge. And so as my final question for you today, what is your Savvy Sauce? So, all right, can I go a little bit deep on this? Because I tend to think that way. Uh, I think probably life hack, and this is something that I come back to a lot, is that you know, Jesus died to deal with our sin, but he also died to deal with ourself. And so much of difficulty in marriage and relationship is ourself, our egos, you know, are demanding, I want to have my way. And so I'd say if there's one life hack that just keeps me going, especially since I started this ministry, it's just every day giving myself again to God and just saying, Lord, 
I don't want to live this day for me. I want to live this day for your glory. Would you just guide me? And um, that's deep, but it's simple. Like it takes literally 30 seconds on my knees in the morning and God answers that prayer. So that would be my savvy sauce. I love it. And Julie, you have such an important voice in reclaiming God's view of sexuality. And I'm humbled every time that you share an hour of yours to educate us further on his truth. But I also appreciate your gentle and calm demeanor. So thank you very much for being my guest. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to share about this book and just encourage wives. One more thing before you go. Have you heard the term gospel before? It simply means good news, and I want to share the best news with you. But it starts with the bad news. Every single one of us were born sinners, and God is perfect and holy, so he cannot be in the presence of sin. Therefore, we're separated from him. This means there's absolutely no chance we can make it to heaven on our own. So for you and for me, it means we deserve death and we can never pay back the sacrifice we owe to be saved. We need a savior. But God loved us so much, he made a way for his only son to willingly die in our place as the perfect substitute. This gives us hope of life forever in right relationship with him. That is good news. Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live and died in our place for our sin. This was God's plan to make a way to reconcile with us so that God can look at us and see Jesus. We can be covered and justified through the work Jesus finished if we choose to receive what he has done for us. Romans 10:9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to take our place. I pray someone today, right now, is touched and chooses to turn their life over to you. Will you clearly guide them and help them take their next step in faith to declare you as Lord of their life? We trust you to work and change the lives now for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer, you are declaring him for me, so me for him. You get the opportunity to live your life for him. At this podcast, we are called Savvy for a reason. We want to give you practical tools to implement the knowledge you have learned. So you're ready to get started? First, tell someone. Say it out loud. Get a Bible. The first day I made this decision, my parents took me to Barnes & Noble to get the Quest NIV Bible, and I love it. Start by reading the book of John. Get connected locally, which basically means just tell someone who is part of the church in your community that you made a decision to follow Christ. I'm assuming they will be thrilled to talk with you about further steps, such as going to church and getting connected to other believers to encourage you. We want to celebrate with you too, so feel free to leave a comment for us if you made a decision for Christ. We also have show notes included where you can read scripture that describes this process. Finally, be encouraged. Luke 15.10 says, In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The heavens are praising with you for your decision today. If you've already received this good news, I pray that you have someone else to share it with today. 
You are loved and I look forward to meeting you here next time.